Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, it looks like Phoenix 1.7.1 has been released. It adds an enhancement to the Phoenix new generator, which moves away from hero icons as the library and instead moves them into code, SVG, and puts them into priv hero icons. And then it uses some tailwind magic to just use classes to use those icons instead. Our very own David has a nice little project that generates diffs, and he shared a link, which we'll drop in the show notes, where you can see a pretty sizable diff of <laughs> what this means to your newly generated project. So it's not as scary as it looks. And I agree with the approach that they're taking here. Like there was an inherent problem with having it all in a function based, you know, module. You can't really like get them out, right? It's all an executed code. It's it's hard to optimize that. And so that's the reasoning behind vendoring it like this. I anticipate there there could be some like better ergonomics eventually. Maybe you know like for example, ES Build and Tailwind now, they download the binaries locally. I imagine that there could also be like a Hero Icons mix-based kind of library that goes out to manage this stuff for you, but it still does the same thing as what this this diff is going to sh show show you, right? Still, It still puts everything into the priv folder for Hero Icons. But all that to say is that, yeah, this is giving it a, a pathway to optimizing all those Hero Icons you know, not having to serve up the ones that you never use anywhere. Tailwind can be knowledgeable about it. All all good stuff. Just don't be afraid of the diff. <laughs> yeah. And just as a, a tip on hero icons, it's nice that you can have a Phoenix generator app. Like when I start a new app, I can have something that includes icons just for new apps. And that's a great place to start. So I, I agree with the idea. Personally, I don't use hero icons. I had previously purchased a font awesome icons. And so those are the ones that I use because it has the same theme and feel. And that's what's neat about this is it's just, hey, here's a good place to start from if you just want to get going, but you don't have to use it. And I, I like that they're staying with that whole theme of it's, it's an option for you and it's a good place to begin. All right, moving on. An interesting addition to Elixir as the language is being discussed, has been discussed, and has finalized, I guess, <laughs> at the time we were telling you this. It's all on the on the language mailing list, so just a reminder, there is a mailing list out there. We'll have a link to the show notes, so if you have ideas of what you know the language might need itself, there's an Elixir lang language core mailing list. But, you know, like all mailing lists with proposals, it's good to keep it concise. Don't jump on with, like, plus ones and stuff. That's just not very helpful. Good to know your enthusiasm, but there's other places for that. Anyway, it's just a, a public place to see, you know, feature discussions like this. All right, so on to what the addition is. The interesting addition is that there are going to be multi-letter uppercase sigils now, right? We've been limited to single character sigils, you know, like squiggle W for a, a list of words, I think is what W stands for there. And then there's squiggle S for some string, right? But you can only do the the S or the W, and then there's there's other ones out there. Heeks, for example, has a H, right? But what would it look like if there was squiggle SQL, SQL, right? That could open up the doors for more libraries, not just these core ones like Phoenix, right? But all these other libraries in their own domains to be able to create interpreters for their sigils. 
I can, I can, I'm actually really looking forward to a squiggle sequel that is smart about sequel, right. And can actually tokenize sequel and validate sequel for you. That would just be amazeballs. <laughs> There's also, you know, other examples of things you can do. There's other domains. You can do something like Jetpack, or you can do CSS. Maybe, you know, the doors are wide open and being that it's all uppercase, it prevents you from being confused of like regular looking functions you know like it's it's kind of easy to like i don't know get that confused but also it's easier to name them you always have to kind of guess what the letter means and what library that might go to but now you can be a little bit more verbose all good stuff it was discussed and now it's merged so i guess it's an elixir master we'll see it in the next published version of elixir i reckon yeah i think it's a nice addition because it's it's just really more human readable to see what these things are and what they mean. Like what's a lowercase W versus an uppercase W? It's like, it's not super easy to in, just intuit that. Just to be clear, this does not break anything going backward. It would not change any of the existing ones. It would not break existing code. It would just add the ability to have multi-letter uppercase and upper, uppercase only. It's nice because you can say, this is sigil SQL. So I know to do something special and different than just handling it as a string, because maybe parameter substitution is handled a little differently, more securely that way. That's nice. I'm excited to see what people do with it. And next up, with Phoenix 1.7 coming out, Herman Valesco has created a number of different little videos that were helpful as he was making some of these discoveries. And he has combined those all into a nice YouTube playlist to make it easier for people to check them out. What I like about them is a really short. They're nice and tight videos. But what you'll find over there is verified routes, rendering templates without views, streams, the move to flash.get as a, a change, using Bandit as an alternative web server, and more. And another new tip from Herman is using Phoenix-mounted the binding to do initial animations when the page or a component is mounted. And so he has a little video showing how you can use that, like the Phoenix mounted, plus a JS command for transitions and make it animate as it comes in. So that was cool. Yeah, very cool. Next up, we saw from the folks at Fullstack Phoenix, a little project or a little mix task to help you migrate to verified routes. This is actually pretty cool. It's just a little gist and we'll drop a link in the show notes. What you do is you just copy that gist or that mix task into your own project and you run it and it's going to just run through all the instances or occurrences of routes dot, right? The, the deprecated, I guess, maybe it's not officially deprecated. I don't know. The old way of doing the route helpers and it will give you a little prompt. Should I change this from this to this? And you just say yes or no, <laughs> and it will replace it right there in line. That's really interesting. It's obviously not going to help out with, you know, arguments or options, query params, and a little more complicated routes. So you'll have, probably have to do those manually, but man, that'll get a huge chunk of them out of the way for you. Just grab a drink or something and a snack and just sit there and keep your finger on the Y key and just scroll through <laughs> several hundred and knock them out. Yep. <laughs> And, you know, the hardest part is just knowing what to transform it to. So it mm -hmm. resolves it for you programmatically. That was the hardest part. So that's awesome. Yeah, have a tab open with that. And then when it gets to the complicated one with query params or something, hop in your editor, fix it right then and there, then continue on. Yeah, it's good stuff. Quick one for us. Somebody published a quick bash script to launch a live book that's connected to your fly instance. So I thought it was handy. So I'm not going to tell you what the script is over the air here, but you should go find this snippet, go put it into your dot files 
and then you can launch a live book instance right connected to your fly you know app that you might be having up there when you do this just make sure that you know that the cookie that's kind of the you know the secret to connect so if you don't like generate a cookie you know it might be randomly generating for you that's i think that might be the default in some cases so a little bit of setup there define your cookie and then have that like shared secret on your side of the world on your computer and then that little bash script should be really simple it ends up being a one-liner to get you a live book up that's connected to your your app and next up because phoenix 1.7 is using tailwind css by default of course you don't have to use that you can change it. But if you want to stay with it, there's always been what you can find over on Tailwind CSS and even Tailwind UI. They have some free, but it's mostly paid examples where they have layouts of, you know, this is how you can do lists and full pages and things like that. Well, another one I saw was Flowbyte. So it's also doing the free and paid, but it's all with Tailwind. But what is interesting is if you're just looking to get some more components like individual components. They even have some compound interesting ones like a timeline going like vertical timelines with different things that you want to show on a timeline going vertical or horizontal or whatever. And all these different types of components, those are free. And so it's more of the fully pre-designed pages that are paid. So if you're wanting to stay with Tailwind and you want some nice styles for components and things, it's just a nice resource to be able to check out. The reason it came up for us is they recently added a guide on Flowbyte for how to get started with Flowbyte with Phoenix. So it's specifically called out like, hey, Phoenix people, you can do this too. Very cool. They look nice. Another update from the LiveView native folks. They said they've now moved on to modifiers and that the implementation is complete for the LiveView native Swift UI views. So maybe some of these words make sense to people who do <laughs> iOS developer development, but doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> Progress. That's what that means. Progress. Getting there. This is going to be good stuff. They finished something and they started a new thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we can't talk about Elixir without a little bit of Erlang. And we are happily chugging away, most of us anyway, on OTP 25. But, you know, upgrades happen to OTP too, right? And so 26 is on its way to release. RC1 is published at the time of this recording of OTP26. And so here's a quick rundown of what can be expected in OTP26. First of all, maybe my most favorite thing here, Dialyzer is going to get some improvements. So I've got a link to a Erlang Forums post that kind of breaks it down a little bit. Nathan Long had a good question in there. So I'm following along as well. But He's wondering, what does this mean for us? What is what, what are dialyzer improvements here? Well, they're adding a dash dash incremental flag. So that way it's not starting from scratch every single time. Maybe I'm missing something here. Maybe someone can help correct me or fill me in. But I, th I think Dialixer does a little bit of this kind of like incremental building as well. So from what I understand, this concept at least is being upstreamed into OTP. So that's going to be amazing. I'm not going to say that we don't need Dialixer in OTP26, but maybe there's some overlap there now. It's going to get faster because it's also, so incremental is one way, but it's also now going to store more about the code and not just the types, right? So I'm hoping that this means that the failures will have a little bit better messaging because that's another complaint folks have about Dialyzer. Lastly, about Dialyzer is a quote here. Uh, this new incremental mode is likely to become the default in a future release. So... That means that this won't be out-of-the-box improvements. You'll have to opt into this for a little bit until they make it the default. Maybe OTP 27? I don't know. We'll see. 
But when you get to OTP 26, look out for that flag and let's see how, how much better it's getting. All right, another update is that the terminal subsystem has been rewritten. If this is uh, exciting to you, you should let us know why. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was some uh, differences with the Windows terminal for Erlang, so I think it was targeting some fixes there, but I think we're getting some good improvements along the way. Next up, the Base64 module has significantly improved. So I know Base64 is a common thing that a lot of web apps do. So we're going to see a little bit of an improvement there. One example benchmark is that they have on the JIT, both encode and decode are three times faster than OTB25. So that's going to be good. Nice little bump. And it looks like there was also some shell improvements, some autocomplete of variables, record names, maps, parameters and types and file names improvements to making it so you can open an external editor in the shell to edit, as well as some help with defining records with types, functions, specs, and then types in the shell. So some pretty cool stuff there. And next up, just in the topic of Beam related, Gleam version 0.27 was released. So if you're not sure what Gleam is, it's a type safe and scalable language for the Erlang virtual machine and JavaScript runtimes. So it is a statically typed language that runs on the Beam. In their latest release, among other things, they add a new keyword called panic, which causes your program to crash intentionally. And you might think, well, why would I want to do that? You know, I would usually want to keep my apps running. Louis Pilfold explains that your program may not have sufficiently constrained types to make invalid state unrepresentable, meaning that it's possible to have a bad state. And in this case, you may want to use the panic to crash the program when an invalid state is reached, which is often preferable than silently continuing or having to program defensively. So there are other improvements in this 0.27. If you're interested in Gleam, certainly go check that out. I'm imagining this, this case, you know, you, you always got that one case statement where, where you, you've, you've got all your cases handled and then you get to this last one and we're like, Mm, but you should never get to this one. So like, what the heck <laughs> happened here? Logger.error here, WTF, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that one, you can just throw the whole thing on, up in the air and panic, yeah. boom. Yeah. <laughs> and last up, if you're interested in Codebeam Lite Stockholm, it's going to be on Friday, May 12th, 2023, a one-day conference. And the early bird tickets are on sale now at codebeamstockholm.com. And that's it for the news. Elixir and Phoenix are incredible. They make it possible to quickly build highly resilient and reliable systems capable of operating at incredible scale. Fly.io is a great place to host Elixir apps. You can deploy your app to multiple regions around the world with a private network linking them all together so your app can cluster and globally do some incredible Phoenix magic. Give your users a more responsive UI while writing less code and moving the app closer to your users without needing an ops team. Check out fly.io for your next Elixir app. Today we're being joined by our special guest, Thomas Depierre. I'm sure I butchered it. So Thomas, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's not too bad. You did okay. <laughs> so I saw something that you did recently where you were doing some work on something called the Orion Library, and it was getting some attention in the news. What I gathered from this, and I'm really excited to talk to you about this so we can get a better understanding of what this is, how this can help us, but it's a distributed tracing tool for Elixir, but it has some unique properties that make it actually safe as something we can use in production. But before we get into all of that, maybe you can share a little bit about yourself, like where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Yeah, sure. 
I live in France, right? Like, so my, my accent may have helped a few listeners to discover that. And in the east of France, particularly. And I work right these days mostly for Indeed, Indeed.com. I'm an SRE there, but I don't work particularly on the Beam there. I used to be a software engineer for, on all kind of Beam analytics here jobs for the past few years, but, you know, not this time around, but I'm still spending quite a lot of my, you know, free time and open source time on everything in this kind of environment. So that's kind of how we end up in there. You said you've had a lot of other previous experience working with Elixir. How long have you been using Elixir and what were you using before that? I think I'm at my seventh years professionally. I mean, my last year I've not been Elixir, but if, if I say I've been, I think I've been using Elixir professionally for something like six or seven years. Slightly before 1.0 or around that was the first time I really started going into it. Before that, things were a bit different. I started my career in uh, electronic engineering as an E, so and, and really as an embedded, but you know, really embedded, not the kind of stuff where nerfs can run, uh, low-level C, some assembly, stuff like that, and ended up trying to go into software at the more software engineer's target, and... After exploring a lot and not finding a lot of language that were making sense to me, I did a bit of a data analysis and I ended up pretty quickly on, on Elixir uh, and Erlang and all the Beam, which resonated with me based on what I was doing as an EE. Like it was making far more sense than any of the operating, like object-oriented programming language I was meeting, which were really, like I really, and I still to this day have a really hard time writing anything in that. It still doesn't mesh with how I think. So, yeah. Well, I would love to jump into this topic of Orion and this library. So first, maybe you can just give us an introduction to what is the Orion library? I call it a dynamic profiler, right? So this idea is that if you want to know how fast a function runs in production, you can launch Orion, type your MFA, and you will get immediately the data from production relatively safely for that function. And that's a, that basically the idea that you can go in production on a wall cluster and say, hey, how fast is this running? And you get your answer. Pretty simple in theory. <laughs> in, in theory. <laughs> We're going to go deeper on that, of course. But I wanted to also talk about the origin of this library, because from what I saw, it looks like this started out as a 2021 SpawnFest entry, but it didn't quite finish out there. So tell us a little bit about how that got started. The way it got started is that this is something I've wanted for a long time, and we'll probably talk about that later. And I was thinking of how to do it, and I had finally all the pieces I needed at that point. Part of that was a way to have a, a nice distributed histogram and all kind of thing like that. And so I wanted to build it, but I had no real you know, the, the kick in the butt to start doing it wasn't happening. And Spawnfest was coming and I was like talking with a friend. And we're like, you know what? We could try that as a Spawnfest entry to, you know, give us the impetus to, to start working on it for a few hours. And so we did that for the weekend relatively slowly. We took our time. We were quite busy, both of us. And so it was not in a shape we were okay. You know, it, it ended up in a shape where it was not really an entry that they could easily grade, but it still gave us a start. And then over the year and a half after that, that was a lot of, you know, so when I have a bit of time, go on it and tweak a bit, bring it back up, try to bring it to the place where I was happy with it. And finally, recently, I had a bit more time to, you know, really work on it and bring it to a shape where I'm happy calling it a 1.0 and releasing it. 
that is a, it is a nice thing when you can use a competition or something like that as a way to force you to do something like, you know, be it, hey, I'm going to start doing fitness. I'm going to enter myself into a competition. So I have to start, you know, walking and jogging or whatever it is. So that's cool. Like you found a good forcing function to get you started. So I'm grateful you did that because this looks like a really cool library. I think the first thing that people are going to think about is I've seen something that does tracing and like the flame on library and where it creates this flame graph of call stacks and everything and gives people an insight into what's going on in their running application. I think a good place to start is what's the difference between Orion and flame on? Well, they take two different approaches to a similar problem, right? Flame on is kind of your classic profiler, right? So you give it a piece of code. And you tell it, hey, I would like to um, you to look at all this and tell me what's happening in this stack trace, right? In the whole stack of calls going to do, tell me how everything is running fast or not and how much time is spent and how many times it's called, all those kinds of things. And this is the way profilers work, right? They, they sometimes record different pieces of information, but uh, you may have used, or some of our listeners may have used like eProf, or fprof that come with Erlang and Alexa, right? Which are different way to profile. You instrument slightly different thing, you record things slightly differently, but all of this is the same kind of idea as Flameon, where you start it and then you get a bit of data about all the calls that were done during the time you observed, right? You record it. And Flameon particularly enabled you to get this really nice stack trace that you can import in all this uh, flame graph tooling, which is a really classical profiling performance tool. To, to explain the difference with Orion, I think I will walk back a bit and talk about what is a particular problem that these profiler do not solve, right? Why was I left without the, the tool I needed? The thing with all these profilers is that they are supposed to be used in relatively lab conditions. Right, they need to instrument every call, and that has a cost that becomes relatively heavy quickly because you instrument a lot of things, even things that you may not need the data later. Right, and so you end up having to instrument everything. On top of that, you need to make sense of the data, which means that a few of them are forced to single thread everything. Right, for people that may have used it at home, this is the same kind of frame you have with S trace if you ever use that. Where, which is a, a tracing profiler for system call on Linux. And if you use it, you regularly get programs that were buggy, like you had a crash or a problem, that end up working when you trace them because a prime was a data race, a race condition, and S-trace forced it to be single-threaded, so the prime magically disappeared. And so you were using it to debug it, and you can't find it anymore because due to the way it works, the way it can it enable you to get all this data? It, it stops the bug from happening, which is a regular problem. And so Flameon has this kind of problem where the way it works is that it will mock a lot of the calls to be able to extract the information. That's usually not really what you want in production, right? You don't really want to go in production and mock your code in production magically and make things not happen as they should be. And so all these tools are really meant to be used in a lab condition where you have a reproducible test case and you run that test case under the profiler, right? The profiler wraps things and may interfere with what's happening because it will have to trace everything. And that's great, 
But most of the prime I deal with, especially at the time where this is slow. And we all know it's one of the worst bugs we can have, right? When you get a, a bug report, just say, hey, this call is slow. Thank you very much. Uh, that's super helpful. Uh, what do I do with that? <laughs> and, and, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to look at the logs. It didn't tell you anything because nothing is crashing. It's just slow. And then you get into this really, really painful process of trying to find out what is slow, right? And what I discovered and what is, is a relatively well-known problem in a lot of the performance crowd is that things being slow is usually it happens in really specific conditions that may only be present in production, sometimes only after a few days of the thing running without stopping. And at this point, when you need to reproduce it locally, you are never going to, that's not going to happen, right? Like it's going to take months, you're probably never going to get there and all. And so what I wanted was a way to be able to do the same kind of investigation, but in production. That implies that you can't do the whole the whole stack. You're you're not mocking the whole thing, which yeah sounds a lot safer. How is Orion doing it then? If you're only tracing or profiling, you know the 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 MFA that's given, is it just mocking that one MFA and then puts it back? How how does it work? So no, what we do is that what I do because it's mostly me in this day of maintenance is that Orion use dynamic tracing. Because the beam gives us that, right? The beam enables us to really cheaply and relatively safely, there are some exceptions, but relatively safely hook into any MFA and even more than that, but we don't cover that right now with RN, and get a signal when it's called and a signal when it returns. And that's exactly what you need if you just want to calculate the time it took to run. And so we aggregate all this over a certain period, uh, by default one second, and then we show it to people. Gotcha. Is this, is this the 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 sys like trace you know Erlang function that you're wrapping up uh, here with some some nice things? What's is there a function in, in Erlang that this is presenting in a, ni a nicer way for for Elixir folks? It's two function mostly. Erlang trace and Erlang trace pattern, they are really core cool to the Erlang language itself, right? And they could be used in a lot of different ways. I only use a really small part of what they can do. And what they enable you to do is that trace pattern allow you to specify what you want to look at. And trace allow you to specify, I want to look at it now. I want the result. And I want the result for a certain set of PID, like there is a lot of conditions because it is a really powerful and flexible ability you get that. But mostly that's what we do. We get a pattern, we register it and saying, hey, this pattern is what I want to look at. And then we say, hey, I want to look at it now. The other advantage of doing it this way is that we can quickly change it. And that's why I call that dynamic. And that's one of the reasons I like it. What it allows you to do is at any time I can add a new pattern. And there is no limit. If you want dozens of, if you want to look at dozens of functions, you can. If you want to post thing, like, you know, you look at thing, you get your data and now you want to stop collecting in case you are afraid it could have an impact. You post things and you just, we just say to the Erlang system, Hey, I don't want to collect that for now. And you just pose and wait for us to, to come back and ask for it again. So it's really a flexible system 
you can retrace a lot of different things and will limit you to these functions. But yeah, it's pretty safe and pretty nice in that sense. Gotcha. So I've I've done the sys trace function before in Erlang, and it's uh, I never get it right the first time. Uh, <laughs> it's probably like ten attempts of getting getting it right to, to do anything. And, and and the problem there for for me at least is I can't make match specs up in my head and make sense. I, I'm sure you're you're dealing with this in some way. And, and you know, just looking at the screenshots of Orion, maybe it's not really exposed, you know, to the user quite yet. The, the complexity that match spec, you know, can allow you to, to to trace things with. So you're you're limiting it to, I think right now, you correct me if I'm wrong, module function arity only, but not like a specific argument of the, you know, arity when I receive the number one, but not the number two, that kind of stuff. So that simplicity helps make it well <laughs> easy to get going on it. All right. Do do you have any plans on on like exposing constructing match specs and all that? What is that going to look like? Match spec can be really gnarly. Uh, the the language is not it's a great language like the way match spec look, right? Which is it's a great way for a computer to look at this. It's not really great for a human to write it, right? I, I will start with an advice for people that may look into this. First, use Recon uh, as a library. Don't use the sys default implementation. At this point, when I go come into a project, I've been freelancing for many years where I was coming into existing projects. I immediately add Recon to the project. It has no real cost when it's not when you are not using it. And when the problem comes through, it has a whole toolkit you will want to have in production at that moment. Yeah, I've, I've hit that. Like, I don't have Recon installed. And so I'm like sitting there in a session, like trying to figure out sys.trace. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the second thing I also add all the time at the same time, it's a small library you can find on Hex called X2MS for Elixir to match spec which is really, really helpful. It looks a lot like an XA head function. It's a small macro. It's maintained by Eric, which you may know, Meadows Johnson, which is the maintainer of Hex. It allows you to type your match back in a way you would type your XA function head, which is far, 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 and it's how give you out these, these, you know, nice, the way the program wants it. So it's really, really nicer when you are in production to, to be able to do that in a way that makes more sense, right? So that's the first thing, uh, what we're going there. Uh, I, I would really recommend people to just add these two things to their code base and just have it always there. It will be useful one day, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> Elixir to match spec is what that's trying to say, yeah. You have to use it with ETS too when you're trying to select things out of an ETS cache. So I don't bother with... <laughs> Sometimes I, I go through the trouble of doing it in a console just to get it to work, you know, make my test pass. I'll just, you know, import XSMS and then I'll put in my, my you know, expression in there. It'll give me the match spec and I'll literally copy and paste it in there. I always kick myself after the fact because like, it's not like that explains what I'm doing. Like I might as well just have... Like just have the the actual elixir expression there, so so I don't have to wander the next time I have to go in there and debug something. Anyway, nice library. I do recommend it. Short, simple, doesn't yeah, doesn't really get in the way. So to come back to what you know to to the original question around Orion, yes, we only right now expose the arity right model functionality. You can trace Erlang or the elixir functions. There is no limitation here, but we only expose the, the MFA. 
I have plans to bring full match spec because I think it should be there. The reason it's not there is that I wanted a 1.0 out. I wanted to have a base where I was like, hey, uh, this is done. And now when I come back to it, it's because I have one feature I want to add or one change I want to do and not all this backlog of things I want there before 1.0. But I do want match spec. How it's going to look like is a hard question. My current thinking is that I will allow people to just paste a function, an Elixir function head. Like write your dev name of the function thingy, everything's the same. And you will just have to give me your module on top of that. And I will have to figure out how to pass all of that and transform it into something that makes sense. But that's probably the easiest way I can think of. So if you want a particular argument to look a particular way, well, you type it as you would type it in your Elixir code and that will be there, right? The same terms, use the same literal terms. If you want a guard, you can use guards and I will translate that. Nearly all guards are allowed in matchback. And if that's not the case, then I should be able to give you a nice error message that will explain what's happening. So that's the plan right now. That's really cool. I'm glad I'm getting a better picture of what's possible, uh, especially around match specs and, and where you're at right now. So I'm thinking about like right now, lots of people, they have Elixir applications where they might even cluster them in production because it's dynamic tracing. How does this work in a cluster? Any special cases around that? If it's clustered, that's an if, of course, uh, there is no, no real special case. So, so the way it works is that it's going to start tracing on every node and it will merge the result into one picture on the thing you are looking at. Right now, we do not allow to uh, trace only one node. Right now, we do not allow to separate the data from all these nodes into different graphs. It may come at some point. Uh, I was thinking about that today. I don't have a huge need for it myself, but if people need it, why not? Uh, it's a bit painful, but it's doable. The reason I do that is because when you provide in production, usually these days, a lot of people are going to use it in a Phoenix-like environment. Like, let's be realistic, that's a lot of the application out there. And when you do that, you do not know which node your requests will end up on. And that's usually a problem when you trace because you go to a node, you trace a function, and then you hope that someone calls a thing, right? <laughs> or if you call it yourself, you hope your load balancer puts you on the right node. And if it's not, you keep retrying until it works, right? Like there's all kinds of ways to do that. The whole idea here is that I don't want to have to think about that, right? My cluster is a problem. I want to know what's happening. I can just ask and I will get the data from every node on the cluster. The way we do that is that we use a particular data structure that is specialized for this, that can collect all the data per node and then can be merged without any loss. And so you get the data and it's relatively, like it's small in size, right? It's a probabilistic data structure, something, a sketch for people that are deep into that kind of stuff, which is some a particular kind of stuff I love. It's really interesting distributed system technologies. And so it just works. It's really small. So we don't flood your networks with a ton of message, right? It merged really well. And so it allows us to be snappy without having to be to, to think that we are going to create a problem in production. When people go check out the Orion page, the GitHub page, one of the features that they'll quickly see is that there's a UI for this. 
it gives you a visual representation of the amount of time spent in these calls. What kind of user interface will they see from this? What does it show them? So this is a, a classic browser UI, right? You, you go to it, you see, I did not reinvent the wheel here, live view under the hood. So you get at the top a form that asks you for module, function, RIT, and then a, a thing to submit that. And when you submit, you will get a graph that will show you in real time the average, the median, the P95 and the P99. So the 99 percentile, so the one percent of the slowest call and the five percent slowest call. Uh, if I remember correctly, that's exactly the one I chose. I, I could choose others by default. Right, we show that, and you will and the count, the numbers of times that function was called per second. And you will see that graph move every second because it's going to keep uh, updating. And you will also have a button where you can pause if you want to be able to look at a graph without having it moving at the U, right? Which is usually practical. On top of that, you can keep adding new MFA. Right? The form stay, and if you add a new one, it will basically append it, uh, prepend it to be precise at the top and, and move everything one level down. And this is partly useful when you want to, when you start exploring, right? And you may start by tracing a controller. And then you see, well, yeah, this controller is kind of slow for some case. Is it, if I open my code and I find that this controller calls these three functions, I can just quickly add them and see which one is slower than others, right? And so this idea is that you get this dynamic way to keep exploring your code and the performance of your code as you are going. So you can keep adding stuff and you also have a, a nice, you know, way to delete one of these graph issues saying, you know, I don't need that data anymore. It's not that important and I want to clean up. So it's relatively simple, form at the top and then a list of graphs that keep append like prepending from the top and push to the bottom every time you add one. That sounds like a really cool way of, well, I'm walking through my code locally, but I'm doing these dynamic traces on the production system and I'm having that confidence that I'm not monkey patching my code in production and I'm not going to do something like where I feel like I have to restart it to clean it up and I'm able to actually see what's going on. But then like as I'm going through and, you know, real time feedback from what's happening in production, looking at my code, hmm, let me see if it's this other function over here and keep narrowing it down until I've really dialed it in. There's another benefit, too, that somebody pointed out that it's also helpful for immutable file systems, right? Because the way that, uh, you, as you say, monkey patch, the way that <laughs> other, other systems do it is by replacing the beam files underneath, right? Recompiling, that kind of thing. And immutable file systems, can't, you can't do that. <laughs> so this is a, a yeah, a runtime only call hooking into into Erlang stuff. Yeah, this is this is great. Yeah, so that immutable file system thing is helpful when you're running on a nerves device. Right. I don't do any nerves programming. It's one of those areas I think would be really cool to spend more time. But I, I can imagine, you know, when you're dealing with much slower hardware, that certain calls might be unexpectedly slower. And debugging that could be harder when it's like trying to debug it on a device. So that's a, a really neat way to do that. Oh, that was Benjamin Mild that, that mentioned that on Twitter. So thanks, Benjamin, for mentioning that. That's a great point. Even if you control your servers or no, the usual way to do that these days is that you are going to use something like OpenTelemetry to add traces to the point where you want data, right? But doing that means that you have to uh, deploy 
right? You are going to have to build and deploy. And that generates a few problems. First, it's a really slow feedback, right? Like even if you have really fast deploy, you are still going to probably spend a few minutes just doing that. That's only if you have fast deploy, which I'm sorry for all our listeners, but I know your stacks, it's probably not like that. <laughs> and even mine, right? Like I'm <laughs> I'm not throwing the, the... I mean, any change you're, you're going to make is probably going to go through the CI system, run all the tests, run everything. And then maybe someone else has to approve the deploy, approve the merge, and then it goes, and then, the, then you start the deploy. So yeah, your feedback cycle for just putting in some trace stuff could be minutes or, you know, tens of minutes. I've I've done that cycle. Yeah. Deploy, deploy, deploy. Oop, I didn't get enough here. Deploy, deploy, deploy. <laughs> Keep on going. Man, it's, it's like my day's already over. <laughs> and on top of that, there is a second problem, which is really important for this kind of performance. You know, this um, it is slow kind of bug, which is that deploying is a destructive action, right? When you deploy nearly all the time, maybe some of viewers do, uh, listeners do hot patching. I know everyone here probably do not, right? Like you are not doing that. And so what that means is that to deploy a new version, you are stopping what's running and starting the new one. But that destroys the state your system is in. And it's not rare than when you do performance exploration, your state is what was happening. It can take a long time to get back to that same problematic state. And so you deploy and then you have to wait a few days for it to come back. And that's not really acceptable, right? This is even worse feedback. So being able to be able to go directly there where you are and just look and ask the system in the state it is without having to add things, uh, that's great. The downside, same as we're talking with Recon on X2MS before, right? You need to have added it before. So if you think you may need that one day, you may want to add the library now so that you have it when that prem happened, right? So how do people add Orion? Because it has this user interface, obviously I don't want anyone to just be poking around and having that publicly available. I imagine I can just, in my router, just put that behind like an admin style login. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Um, I shamelessly stole the live dashboard uh, setup for that. So if you have used a live dashboard, uh, you, you know how to do that. Uh, if you have not, I would explain a bit. Mostly, so we provide a, a live Orion, I think I call it, because this is a Phoenix Live View under the hood macro that you could put on your router, just like on a normal route, and we just, you know, make things work. And if you want to, you know, hide it, which is kind of understandable, you will have to authenticate it, right? So like any classic plug or stuff like that. And if you want to be safe, which I advise, you will also have to do, like in Live View, same prime security prime as Live View, you will have to add a way to validate that authentication in your mount callback, right? Because uh, Live View run twice, right? The original render, which will have all this information, but also the second render when the WebSocket connect. And so for that, the Live Orion accept on mount option, just like the normal live session or live plug in your router, where you can give us an MFA, that uh, a function that will be used to be run on this callback, same way. It's literally what it's, we literally translate that nicely to that option. Nice. Are there any other tips or recommendations you would have for running this in production? I mean, not particularly. I mean, there is nothing really scary there. 
uh, don't go trace, I don't know, plus. <laughs> like, this is going to create you problems, right? Like, this is safe, but it's not the safest it could be. There are a few things I would add to, to make it safer, like uh, rate limiting, where if you go to trace something that is called millions of times per second, you are going to have a problem because this is going to flood your beam with messages for traces, right? Which is kind of a problem in this case. So you, it will have an impact if you try to trace too hard. Recon don't have this problem. I mean, I have less of this problem because they try to rate limit. I want to reproduce that. It has not been done yet because I, I don't expect people to try that in production too much. I want it, but it was not in my 1.0 thing. So don't try that at home, I would say. Outside of that, not really. I mean, it's pretty simple. Please make sure that you do these security steps, right? Like this is important. And I would repeat it because I think the Phoenix Live View uh, security model is not yet entered the head of everyone that deal with that because it's it's a bit different to what we're used to. So outside of that, not really. You will have to have Live View in your application. We explain that, but you know, it's not for everyone. In terms of safety and security, that's mostly it. So I noticed that it's a separate page that you mount behind, you know, a secure auth path and all that. But I know the Phoenix Live dashboard exists. I haven't tried Flame on in a while, but I, I think I remember them having a live dashboard page that, that pops up in there. Is there a similar thing coming up for Orion? Are you, are you looking for contributions to get a, a live dashboard page? I, I imagine it can't be that big of a leap. Just got to hook into the live view dashboard page, you know, API bit to render your existing page that you've already built. But does that exist today? It does not because I don't use Live Dashboard at all. Uh, I have not really seen a use case in my situation for it. So I don't use it. So I have no idea. If someone wants to build something that does it, why not? I wonder how easy it would be to do the form, which is really important because that's how you know what you are going to, to load, right? Live Dashboard is a bit more, how to say that? You prepare things in advance. Right, like you, you have to build your page with what metrics you want on everything in your code. It's not really something dynamic. So I don't know how well it would translate. But if someone wants to try, I'm not going to stop you. Right? You know, now that you say it, I don't know. I know there's a search form. You can definitely search through things. So I think forms are acceptable. But if for some reason, a funny thought. Uh, if for some reason you can't do a form, you could you could just have a big uh, drop down list of all functions and arities <laughs> of your entire system. That'll work, right? <laughs> I mean, it could, I suppose. I mean, I, I have I have ideas to try to add a uh, type ahead, right? So that people have have hints of what exists when they type it, and and if there is a, a typo, they will know it better and all. I suppose you could try something, but that may become really big. <laughs> like there is a lot of modules out there. And funnily enough, making a list of modules is not always that easy. Things get complicated. Yes, it's true. <laughs> uh, now just remembering all these like <laughs> it's intentionally bad design patterns. Like if you're trying to put in a phone number, make it like the number input. So you have to like hit the arrow button to go up all the way up to your phone number. <laughs> it's just so terrible. Also, don't do that because the numbers input doesn't work well for a lot of things. Because then if your numbers is too big, you end up with a JavaScript float and things get not nice. <laughs> I'll have to go find that page. There's a there's a whole bunch of examples of terrible input <laughs> examples. <laughs> so Orion does not come from nowhere, right? There were uh, an application doing something quite like that before, 
called XProf, and I will find for you from AppliScale, that I used years ago in some of my own problems, right? And it was great. I mean, it was good, and it was doing a lot of this stuff. It was a bit less polished, but it has more functionalities. It was not distributed, but it was doing all the rest. Uh, the problem of XProf is that it's not super well maintained, and among other things, it does not build on the modern OTP. OTP 25, I think, broke it. Like I had I'd considered forking it and extending it, which was kind of painful. I not really wanted to, and so I ended up redoing it with my own stuff and a bit simpler and different. But it was definitely an inspiration on something I've used before, so I think it worth mentioning that you know they have done a lot of this work and they have helped me understand that this is even possible. Because that's a problem I see a lot when I talk about tool like Orion, right? Is that no one even realize you can do that. Right. right. The fact that I can connect to a production system and just say, hey, I want to know the exact profile, performance profile of this function for more or less free. Now, please. And just get it. That's not really something we're used to, right? It's true. And then thinking like, yeah, I have six servers running. Oh, and, and do that on all the servers at the same time and combine it all. Yeah. Like, yeah, people just aren't even aware that that's a possibility. This is something we are slowly getting also at the lower level of the stack, right? Is this something you want when you want to, to do that for BIF, right? Or really low-level beam functions and stuff like that. It's even easier these days thanks to the JIT. It's one of these things we have not talked about a lot, but I personally love about the JIT. The JIT output proper C and assembly code, which means that you can use things like eBPF on Linux to trace any function called in Erlang or Elixir with your classic eBPF call. Mm -hmm. So if you are someone that is used to that, and I know probably not a lot of listeners, but if you are one of the few people that have to delve into this kind of depth regularly to deal with the atrocities that live there, <laughs> uh, you probably would be happy to learn that this is possible today. Very cool. Well, that is one of the things we wanted to have you come on and talk about is to help people become aware that this exists, that this feature exists. And with the Orion library, it makes it very accessible, very easy to start using something like this in our own production environments. You've already mentioned a few different things of what you're already hoping to do maybe in the future, and you wanted to get to a 1.0. So what's on your short list? What are you looking to do? And, and are you looking for help to do that? I mean, help, why not? Uh, I don't really expect it. What I really look right now for mostly is a matchback, a bit more safety on the rate limiting, as I mentioned. That's mostly the two things top of mind. Type ahead would be nice, uh, but I don't know how well that would play with the moment we start to do matchback because I want to bring, you know, full function heads that become really complicated to provide you all the work that one of your ID, right, or programming environment would do by itself because it's a lot of work. So that would probably not survive. Something else I'm looking at, but that would probably be, if I ever do that, a commercial extension, because that's a lot of work and stuff I don't want to maintain without a reason, is uh, integrating in your IDE. Right? Something I, so I suppose a lot of our viewers, use, listeners use VS Code because that's the reality of the, the field. Not everyone, but a lot. And if you imagine you could totally do, like, look at your code in VS Code, like right-click or use a shortcut and select a function head. I want to know how this one runs in production. And you get immediately the graph just there in your code with a profile. Yeah, that'd be crazy. 
Now, if you want to, if you want to debug the performance, you can just go and do it, right? You can just click, hey, is this one? Is this, is this one that is a slow one? No. Okay. Is this the one before? No. Is this this one? Oh, this one is slow. Which one of this inside of this it is? Just jump there and, and check. And you can go like that really. You can keep a real flow things, right? Dynamic, what I call exploratory, right? You can keep exploring and going. And that's something you have in mind that could be possible. I don't see a reason that it could not be done today with what we have. It's just more work to integrate on all. But yeah, if I do that, it's probably going to be a paid extension because like this is a lot of work to maintain. Like VS Code is a moving target and all that stuff. So it sounds like you've got a lot that you could do, you know, a short list of, yeah, these are the things that are most important for me. But yeah, that's really cool. So if people do want to follow the progress of what you're working on or possibly even help out with something, where do they go to do that? Well, uh, GitHub, right? The repo is where you can do your PR, bring your issues, yell at me if something broke. I mean, if you yell, I may ignore you, but you can try. (laughs) (laughs) And otherwise, you can find me mostly on uh, Mastodon these days. Diana, you'd probably be linked somewhere in in the notes, I'm sure. You can find me there, uh, mostly. Uh, outside of that, my blog is softwaremaxims.com. There should be all my link there. I probably need to add Mastodon now that I think of it, but otherwise it should be everything. Well, thank you, Thomas, for coming on and sharing this library that you've created and really helping to give visibility to what's possible in the Beam. And we really are on a rich ecosystem where th- features like this were already built into the foundation I love that, you know, people like yourself are able to say, hey, I was really inspired by XProf and the work that they did. And I want to make sure that's easy and available. And hey, I'm going to use LiveView and I'm going to make it so you can just drop this in and you can do these powerful things with your own systems in production and safely. That's that's the awesome part. So thank you very much for that. I mean, thank you for having me and for, you know, helping also all of us share the great things that we can find on the Beam and, and the way it can help us run things. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.